The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good afternoon. You're all very welcome to this week's um, early, Centre for Early Modern History um, seminar and at the Trinity Long Room Hub in, virt- in virtual reality. And it's my great honour this week to introduce this week's speaker, who is Dr. Jason McElligot, um, who is the director of Marcius Library and has been director of Marcius Library since 2011. Before that, he's a graduate of Cambridge. Um, and was formerly on the staff here at the Hub um, from 2008 and previously worked on projects, including the the Roger Morris Entering Book, the great behemoth of 17th century editions. And he's best known perhaps for his work on censorship in revolutionary England, um, but in recent times, his attention has really, has ranged quite broadly and has ranged, I think, further towards the better part of the early modern period, the 18th century. Um, and even further forward, he's done some work on Bram Stoker and his connections specifically with some of Marshall's collections, um, but we're not going to talk about those today. And he's been thinking a little bit about um, and has been writing about um, book stealing in, eight, in 18th century Dublin, um, on white collar crime in 18th century Dublin. And today's chapter and um, today's paper really draws on some work he's been doing for an article and um, to be published in Parliamentary History. Um, but also connects out of a book that Jason co-edited with Martin Conboy in 2019 on the Cato Street um, conspiracy and brings them towards into the sort of era, into the revolutionary era at the end of the 18th century into the early 19th century. So picking up nicely on the, some of the revolutionary themes explored by Manon in her paper on Chartism last time out. Um, and Jason's title is United Britons and Irishmen Proclamations the insurrectionary tradition, 1798 to 1820. So before I hand over to Jason, just to remind people that you can post questions throughout the talk um, in the Q&A chat bar at the bottom of your screen. Um, So feel free to post questions as they come to you rather than just leaving them to the end. When Jason's finished talking, I will then Pose the, question, pose, the, pose the questions to him and we'll have time for some questions and answers at the end of the paper. Um, so rem- just do feel free to post questions as you go along and in the Q&A tab rather than the chat tab. Um, and now, Jason, I'm going to hand over to you and you have an audience of, I think, 42 in front of you so far. Oh, great. Uh, <clears throat> thanks, Patrick. Uh, thanks for the uh, invitation to uh, speak here today and, and sort of to try out a, a paper I've been I've been thinking about uh, a lot of the the stuff I've been thinking about recently really is about the the revolutionary tradition in the 18th and 19th century but specifically the ways in which print culture enables people to pick up tradition later on uh, even if there are discontinuities within the, the personnel. So uh, one of the, the, the reasons why I've got into the whole Cato Street uh, episode in 1820 is I can trace 
uh, a number of these people being very interested in 17th century print culture uh, around the uh, execution of Charles I and also calling for uh, the execution later on of, of Oliver Cromwell. So that's the background. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's basically about the, the revolutionary tradition and the role of print culture in, in sustaining that uh, over a long period. But this paper uh, describes attempts in uh, early 1820 by a group of uh, London-based conspirators to assassinate the British uh, cabinet. Uh, and I suppose there I should have a health warning here. Please don't try this at home. Uh, this is a, a historical uh, a paper. Somebody uh, who reviewed uh, the book recently uh, said uh, there was a suspicion that there was probably a lot of engagement in, in people involved in, in this sort of history. And, and we have to say, uh, well, actually it's, it's historical thing. People, who, not everybody who writes about the assassination of the British cabinet uh, wants to see the assassination of the British cabinet. I think we'll, we'll understand that in an Irish context. Uh, but in particular, I'm gonna focus on the genesis of two proclamations declaring the establishment of a provisional government in London in 1820. One proclamation was addressed to the civilian population uh, and another to the rank and file of the military. And I'm going to describe links between these plotters and a number of Irish radicals living in London who claim to have been out in the rebellions of 1708 and 1803. And I'm going to suggest that the uh, proclamation of 1820 was influenced by the 1798 proclamation drafted by John Shears in Dublin. So the long-standing plot came to fruition uh, in Cato Street, a small uh, side street off the Edgware Road on the 23rd of February, 1820. And on that day, uh, at about 7.30 in the evening, men gathered in a hayloft uh, above a cowshed. And this is the, the cowshed, uh, and the hayloft uh, is above uh, there, and there's a blue plaque uh, commemorating that here on the 23rd of February, uh, the Cato Street conspiracy was discovered. At about 7.30 p.m., men had gathered uh, upstairs. Uh, by about half eight that evening, uh, when the Bow Street runners, the, the plainclothes police officers, raided the building, there were about two dozen individuals uh, upstairs inside, along with uh, a dozen pistols, several carbines and other long arms, uh, a dozen homemade hand grenades, uh, some of them fragmentation grenades, uh, firebombs, knives, cleavers and pikes. Uh, the police when they raided were to have been supported by the army, but the army were late and didn't quite know where they were about, where they were supposed to be. Uh, so the police went in uh, alone. They tackled uh, the two guards who were on the ground floor. These are two different images or recreations uh, of that uh, raid. The one on the right is original from 1820. Uh, the one on the left is a reimagining from the, from the 1970s. Uh, the Bow Street runners tackled uh, two guards uh, on the ground floor. Uh, they then climbed the ladder and ordered the plotters to surrender. A gunfight broke out while other defenders uh, used swords uh, to uh, attack uh, the police. One policeman was killed, and in both of these images, you can see Constable Smithers being run through with a sword by Arthur Thistlewood, the uh, acknowledged head of the plot, uh, while several plotters escaped out the back window 
uh, and others fought their way down the ladder with fists, boots, knives uh, and guns out of the building and then scattered into the streets around uh, left and right. And when the army uh, finally arrived on the scene uh, about five minutes too late, they came across a confused scene in the dark of men running in all directions with scattered shooting uh, and hand-to-hand -hand fighting uh, in the area. In uh, that evening itself, nine uh, men who were in the hayloft were detained uh, that night, including the black radical William Davidson, uh, who'd been born in Jamaica, uh, the son of uh, a freed uh, black woman uh, and uh, a Scottish gentleman, who had then studied uh, in Edinburgh and had really moved down the social scale and down the social ladder uh, in a series of failed uh, business ventures. And by 1820 was uh, involved with a series uh, of uh, radical movements uh, in London. Davidson was arrested uh, out on the Edgware Road uh, as he stopped to turn and fire at police officers who were pursuing him. Uh, the soldiers who coming from the other direction were able to overpower him and drag him back uh, to a public house beside the hayloft. And when he was searched, uh, they found on him uh, a number of documents, including two of the documents that you see here. Uh, on the very right is a hit list. <clears throat> I think that's what we'd have to call it. It may seem anachronistic, but it's a list of 34, 35 names of MPs and their address, addresses and also senior uh, officials of the state. Uh, and in the center is the draft of a proclamation declaring a provisional government uh, addressed to Englishmen. Uh, and with the lines, United Britons and Irishmen, civil and religious liberty is decreed. Davidson was a one of a, a group of, of, of individuals who, when they gathered in that loft, believed they were going to set out to attack the dinner uh, being held by a member of the British cabinet, Lord Harraby, uh, at his house in Grosvenor Square. Uh, unfortunately for the two dozen uh, individuals who congregated there and for those uh, of their colleagues uh, across London who congregated as well, uh, it was an elaborate trap. And over the next few days, uh, the nine individuals arrested on that night were <clears throat> joined by almost 30 more individuals. Very few of those individuals uh, were brought to trial, 11 of them in total, the nine uh, held that night and then two others, uh, because they were the only people who could be tied directly to being involved in the hayloft in Cato Street. Uh, the other two dozen people were initially charged with various crimes, misprision of treason, which is the hiding or the concealment of, of, of treason, uh, but they couldn't be pinned down to Cato Street, so they were eventually uh, released. Uh, but the death toll from the Cato Street conspiracy uh, was quite significant because uh, five of the conspirators uh, were uh, executed in total. Uh, they were uh, John Brunt, William Davidson, uh, James Ings, Arthur Thistlewood, uh, and Richard Tidd as well. And you can see on the, the maypole here, the five heads and the members of the judiciary uh, and the political classes celebrating around uh, the executed uh, individuals. Uh, six 
men uh, who had their sentences, uh, who were found guilty, had their sentences uh, commuted. One was commuted and given six months uh, in prison for a very minor, he was seen as a very minor bit player. But five of the people who had their sentences commuted uh, were transported for life to Australia. Uh, Richard Bradburn, Charles Cooper, John Harrison, John Shaw Strange and, and James Wilson. And we'll come back to Richard Bradburn because he's an Irishman who was centrally involved in the plot. So essentially you have 11 death sentences uh, uh, decreed uh, after a trial at the Old Bailey. Five of the death sentences carried out, five more transported for life to Australia uh, and one individual uh, held for a short period of time in custody and then and then released. And the plot has always been, I suppose, looked down upon as, as isolated, as forlorn, as foolhardy, and ultimately uh, unimportant. Uh, I suppose you could characterize it as 24 men in a cowshed uh, of uh, what importance could it possibly be. And I suppose the conspiracy sits uncomfortably with notions of what it was and what it is to be English or British. As John Stanhope uh, wrote in 1962 uh, in one of the first books to look at the episode, he said, a more unheroic lot of conspirators could scarcely be imagined. The core conspirators cannot be regarded as reliably sane. They had the knack of accumulating around themselves a floating population of psychopaths with a grudge against society. And I suppose in recent years, that's become increasingly untenable due to work by a number of scholars, uh, the late great Malcolm Chase, who died uh, recently, uh, John Gardner as well, uh, and then uh, the edited book that Patrick uh, mentioned, myself and, and uh, Martin Conboy uh, brought out earlier this year, reassessing uh, the Cato Street conspiracy in a number uh, of articles. And there's some great articles in that book, Ryan Hanley on Cato Street and the, and the Caribbean, uh, Richard Gaunt uh, on, on uh, after uh, men who went to Australia uh, and what they ended up doing, uh, proving that uh, when you took these radicals out of, of a dysfunctional political society, actually they could have uh, extraordinarily productive, uh, economically productive and socially productive uh, lives. So I think in, in general, it's, it's understood that there was more to the plot uh, than might have been uh, understood in, in the past. Uh, but really, we're still at this stage of trying to understand the politics uh, of the plot. And for me, the politics of the plot all goes back to this. It goes back to Peterloo. This is the massacre in August 1819 in Manchester uh, of around 16, 17, 18 uh, innocent men, women and children and 400, uh, over 400 people wounded uh, protesting for uh, reform or demonstrating for reform. Uh, and as a result of Peterloo, it's often said that nothing really comes of Peterloo because the great impetus for change is the Reform Act of 1832. But really what was to have come as far as these men were concerned out of Peterloo was Cato Street. Uh, they were determined, a small group uh, of radicals, uh, to extract uh, revenge for the massacre uh, at Peterloo. Uh, and the two leading ultra-radicals in London at the time who were behind the uh, Cato Street conspiracy, men who are determined to extract revenge, 
uh, Arthur Thistlewood uh, and James uh, Watson, and we'll be talking uh, a little bit uh, about those over the next uh, few minutes. Their strategy was to press for mass mobilizations to demand reform in the aftermath uh, of Peterloo uh, and to use those uh, mass demonstrations uh, across London, the north of England, the Midlands and, and Scotland uh, to press for essentially revolution. They were determined that as the state had declared, had openly declared civil war on the people, it was time for the people to declare civil war. Uh, on the on the state, uh, that was the strategy. It probably, uh, as as uh, events demonstrated, it wasn't the most reasonable strategy because most reasonable people faced with the prospect of civil war uh, will back away from the prospect of civil war, uh, and their strategy of infiltrating uh, mass movements, demanding reform, uh, and complaining and protesting against uh, the butchery at Peterloo and using them to instigate violence uh, was never really a serious uh, strategy uh, for reform uh, uh, or for revolution. So a series of mass meetings were held uh, in London uh, and across uh, the Midlands, which the radicals had assumed or, or hoped, the ultra-radicals had hoped or assumed would be massively uh, successful, but they were relatively small because obviously people had realized that you were putting it up to the state, to use a colloquial phrase, uh, if you were demanding reform in the aftermath of Peterloo. The state was not going to reform. If you went out onto the streets, uh, there was likely to be trouble. So that strategy failed and it failed miserably. And then the individuals around Arthur Thistlewood, uh, around 40 of them uh, based in London, meeting in taverns in Aldwych and the Grays Inn Road and Brooks Market, begin to think of other strategies. Initially in early December 1819, they, they think about uh, attacking Parliament itself. There is uh, the sketch of a plan to get 200 men to attack Parliament. The only problem is they realize very soon they don't have 200 men they have 40 to 50 so by mid-December they've settled on a plan with a small core group of conspirators six to nine of them uh, depending on the the different meetings that they have every day or every two days uh, during this period and they're the core group uh, each of those men is tasked then with recruiting uh, 10 to 12 people uh, into sections uh, which will then, they hope, uh, carry out uh, actions. And the main task that they are determined to do is to attack leading members of the cabinet in revenge for Peterloo. And the two people that they are determined uh, to attack right throughout this period are uh, Lord Sidmouth on the left there, who as Home Secretary is held responsible for Peterloo, and Castle Ray on the right, uh, who was held responsible for the repression after the 1798 rebellion in Ireland. Uh, and it was believed that his execution uh, would lead to uh, Ireland rising in support uh, of London uh, rising. And the strategy of these conspirators is to try essentially to kill as many ministers as possible, uh, either singularly or in small groups, or if they can, and if they're lucky enough, uh, at a cabinet dinner. And throughout this period in December 1819, January and February of 1820, these men, quite determined uh, men, follow these ministers uh, around London uh, in drawing up their hit list uh, and also monitoring uh, their movements. 
on the 20 uh, on the 20 for example they record that they were uh, following castle ray around london on the 25th of January, uh, they were scouting uh, the, the lanes uh, around the Earl of Harrowby's house. On the 5th of February, uh, one of the men, Ings, followed Castle Ray uh, around London for over an hour and a half with a, with a knife uh, inside his breast pocket, looking for a chance uh, to attack him. Uh, and on the 8th of February, uh, three of the men followed the Earl of Mulgrave's carriage uh, across London for, for over an hour and a half. So they were pretty determined uh, individuals. The ministers knew they were being followed. Uh, they could see uh, the tails, uh, as, as, as it were. Uh, they did increase their security. Uh, they did have police guards and they also uh, armed themselves in response. But they also knew what was going on because one of the members of the plot one of the members of the core group, a man called George Edwards, was reporting back on a regular, almost uh, daily basis to uh, a member of staff uh, in the Home Office. Uh, he was essentially Thistlewood's aide de camp, uh, and he was the person uh, who was providing very detailed uh, accounts of what was happening, what was going on. So the authorities knew what the plan was, uh, but they only had the word of the informer, so they had to allow the plan uh, to play itself out. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, while the ministers knew they were being followed around London uh, and the uh, plotters followed them, uh, the plotters uh, amassed pistols, they amassed uh, long arms, they developed hand grenades and tested them successfully. Uh, they built uh, firebombs, uh, they built a, a bigger device uh, which would constitute a, a bomb, a five pound bomb, and they had help from an iron manufacturer to create uh, hundreds uh, of pikes uh, and they were recruiting uh, individuals uh, and watching uh, and waiting and here on the left is a is a recipe for essentially for a Molotov cocktail uh, uh, produced by James uh, Watson and here's an, an image of the type of one of the pistols that they amassed during this period. Significantly on the left on the image there uh, you'll see it's signed at the end GE January 29th 1820 and this is the informer George Edwards signing and dating every piece of original incriminating evidence uh, that passes through his hands and then passing it on uh, to the Home Office because uh, he was clear that he would be called upon to give evidence uh, in court as to these, uh, these events. So they watch uh, and they wait uh, and uh, there's a real tension in the group in January and February between Thistlewood who wants to hold the group together, the core group of six to eight individuals and the people they've recruited, so perhaps up to 40, 50 people, uh, wants to hold them together until there's a, a cabinet dinner they can attack uh, and other hotheads, uh, men like John Brunt, who want to go in small groups and attack uh, whoever they can find on the basis of the, of, the, of the hit list. So on the 24th of January, Thistlewood tells the group at their regular daily meeting that he's learned from a source that the Earl of Harrowby is going to have a dinner on the 1st of February. So the 1st of February is the day they will attack the uh, cabinet and they will declare the provisional uh, government. Uh, on the basis of that, they set about uh, informing the, the people in their different sections as to what's uh, going to happen. They start bringing all the weapons together into a room. They rent a room, an empty room, uh, 
beside a room rented by one of their members so they can keep an eye uh, on uh, the uh, goings on. Uh, and then they also decide uh, to sit about writing a proclamation that once they rise, calling on the people to side with them. And Thistlewood tells the group that he's already got a printer who will print this proclamation. Over the next few days, they begin preliminary work uh, on uh, planning for the 1st of February, the attack. Uh, and uh, here are some of the uh, iron pikes that they, the, some of the 200 iron pikes that they had uh, amassed, as well as the weapons. And uh, you can see from the, from the uh, head of the pike here that they're, they're pretty gruesome weapons. They're, they're essentially constructed from the top of iron railings, uh, but they have been machined uh, to make uh, fish hooks on them, fish barbs on them, so that they go into your guts, but they don't necessarily come out very easily. So it's a pretty serious uh, operation, uh, certainly as a as a as a strike against the cabinet. Whether the uh, plans against the state are as serious uh, is another matter that we might uh, discuss. But certainly, uh, when uh, they come down to sit down, they sit down to write uh, a proclamation. And this is the first proclamation uh, that they uh, draft on the 27th of January in their small group. Now, I won't go through uh, and read it uh, at uh, length, but it begins off Englishmen uh, and it says justice is triumphant and your tyrants are destroyed. And then it proclaims the provisional government uh, and decrees that one month from the date of the establishment of the provisional government, there will be a convention of representation delegating voting in all males uh, who've attained the age of 21 years. And there is at the end of that uh, declaration uh, of the provisional government, uh, there is a call on the army to side with the people. And those soldiers who side with the people will uh, be rewarded uh, for their efforts. And it's a financial reward. So that's on the 27th. Uh, that's their uh, initial plan uh, to uh, draft uh, a declaration of the provisional government. But there's one other stage that they do because Thistlewood and the six or seven men outside who draw uh, this up decide that they have to send it to their other leader, uh, James Watson, who at that time is in the White Cross Street debtor's prison. It's a very useful thing uh, to be uh, inside a debtor's prison uh, away from the, the uh, prying eyes uh, of Home Office uh, informers. That declaration is then sent in on the 27th uh, of January and Watson works on the declaration and he comes out then, or what comes out the next day, he doesn't come out, what comes out the next day is this. This is the revised uh, proclamation that Watson uh, has worked on. And it's much shorter, it's only 118 words as opposed to 205 words. It's very similar in that it begins, Englishmen, justice is at last triumphant, your tyrants are destroyed. Uh, but there are a number of striking uh, differences. First uh, is to say that that key phrase, United Britons and Irishmen, civil and religious liberty uh, is decreed. Uh, it doesn't necessarily work very well in the text of the proclamation which opens with Englishmen and then we have a separate appeal to United Britons uh, and Irishmen. I think I'm going to explain uh, where that comes from. 
Uh, you can see that some things have changed. Uh, there's no longer a mention of a convention, a revolutionary convention elected by universal male suffrage over the age of 21 with no property qualifications. And there's no mention uh, of the army. But there is that striking phrase uh, that civil and religious liberty is decreed uh, and a call to United Britons uh, and Irishmen. All right, Jason, just before you go on, I'm just going to stop yeah. your video because the link is slightly iffy. Okay. We'll still, we'll still be able to hear you. Okay, great. So, uh, so essentially, the, the task then for... The task then for Watson is he has taken one proclamation and he has shortened it down and he has appealed to United Britons and Irishmen. Uh, but what he also decides to do is draw up uh, a separate proclamation to the army. Uh, and here we have the original, which is smuggled out of Whitecross Street Prison. And what's happened here is that Wilson has written, this is Wilson's handwriting, Wilson has written the proclamation and then he's divided it up into strips uh, and he has, through his teenage son, smuggled out the first, the third and the fifth strip on one day and then he sends out the second, the fourth and the sixth so that if the son is stopped uh, at any particular time, uh, the authorities can't read uh, the proclamation. So now by the 29th of January, the plotters have two proclamations, one to the civilian population, which is either Englishmen or United Britons and Irishmen, and one to the military uh, in England. And they're ready to uh, attack the cabinet dinner, which uh, is due to take place on the, on the 1st of February. Unfortunately uh, for them, uh, the King George III died uh, on the 29th of January, just as they were uh, pulling together uh, all of the, the pieces uh, for the rising. And again, you can see on this proclamation uh, at the top, GE, January 29th, uh, 1820. Uh, so with the death of the king, the cabinet dinner is called off on the 1st of February and the plotters are left uh, floundering. They're left floundering for a target, and then a number of them start to worry about what's going to happen. Certainly, the, the printer, Thomas Davidson, begins uh, to worry. He had taken on uh, the two uh, proclamations, was ready to print them, uh, and then became very concerned uh, once the imminency of the was called off uh, about potentially having lots of incriminating documents. Uh, around his premises. So he became uh, very elusive uh, throughout uh, the first few days of uh, February 1820. And actually, as Thistlewood and his aide-de-camp, the spy Edwards, uh, went to his house again uh, and again and again and again, he always contrived to be out. Uh, and Mrs. Uh, Davidson, uh, warned Thistlewood uh, that he was being watched and she pointed to a, a gentleman standing at the edge, end of the street and said you are you are uh, being watched. So you can imagine in the context why Davidson with the imminent plot called off uh, and realising that Thistlewood is being uh, followed around the streets of London uh, that he was less than enthusiastic uh, about printing the uh, proclamation. 
So in a way, if we sketch and we jump forward to the 23rd of February, we know that it ends as a disaster for the, for the plotters. It seems uh, entirely ridiculous. As I say, you could, uh, you could uh, talk about it just being 24 men uh, in a cow shed, uh, 11 of them found guilty, five executed and five uh, sent off uh, for life uh, to uh, Australia. And a lot of the ridiculousness of the plot, as it's seen by future historians, is, I think, down to the way in which the trial was uh, managed and run uh, in late April uh, before uh, the executions. Because strangely, even though George Edwards had gone to great detail on all of the drafts of the proclamations uh, which passed through his hands and which he passed on to the Home Office uh, to write uh, details of where and when he had seen them and to certify them as a true copy, the proclamations were never mentioned uh, in court. And that's because uh, it became very clear uh, soon after the arrests that George Edwards was rather than being the star witness in the court case, was going to be the greatest liability for the prosecution because the defense was determined to uh, point, point to him as an agent provocateur who had trapped innocent men into uh, doing something uh, which they had never intended to do. In other words, the plot was a lie. It was a confection. It had been made up. Edwards was the man who made it up and he was responsible for everything. The response of the Crown to this was to take what would have been their star witness and send them out of the country. The star witness was sent to the Scilly Isles and then to South Africa, uh, where he lived out the rest of his life. And then at very short notice, uh, the prosecution had to rely on a number of bit players uh, on the fringes of the conspiracy, men who didn't have access to the story uh, of uh, the proclamation. They were uh, men who couldn't testify to the proclamation, who couldn't testify, <clears throat> excuse me, to the political nature uh, of, the, uh, of the texts which had been uh, drawn up in late January. All that one of them, a man called Adams, uh, could do was he could testify to the fact that as they set out to uh, go to the Cato Street conspiracy, uh, to the Cato Street hayloft, uh, they had been in a room and Adams had seen Thistlewood on three sheets of paper write out these words, your tyrants are destroyed, the friends of liberty are called upon to come forward, the provisional government is sitting. Now that's much less convincing uh, and certainly much less damaging uh, for uh, the uh, for the defence and the defence counsel uh, really tore into the testimony uh, at the court and the defence counsel strategy was really uh, ingenious I think uh, in the court it was unsuccessful but it was a an ingenious uh, strategy. Mr. Adolphus, the QC's strategy was to say yes his clients had gathered in the Cato Street hayloft where they had been arrested yes they had lots of weapons uh, on them but uh, they were uh, should be acquitted because they hadn't gathered for the purposes of treason or to levy war against the king they had gathered for the purposes of highway robbery his clients were bandits 
uh, not political uh, revolutionaries. And I think it's key that Adolphus laughs at, in court, at the absurdity of the testimony concerning uh, the revolutionary proclamations. It's a key point of his defense. He says, if a provisional government were intended, a printing press would one have thought was indispensable. But no means of printing had they. Their proclamations were written on paper. On three pieces of paper were the magical words written, your tyrants are destroyed. On the blazing building, these proclamations were to be stuck up in order that the friends of liberty happening to pass by the ruins might know that a provisional government was sitting. So the state wasn't in a, the crown was not in a position to testify or produce testimony as to the extent of the work on revolutionary proclamations uh, in the run-up to the conspiracy. And the defense used this then to poo-poo the whole idea that there was anything political uh, about the trial. Uh, Mr. Adolphus's clients were criminals uh, rather than uh, political players. So it's no wonder that, uh, it's little wonder that they were found uh, guilty, but it's certainly no wonder that they uh, then disappeared into obscurity, at least in political terms, because neither the state uh, nor the defense had made a big play of the political nature uh, of the conspiracy. Instead, they've been forced to rely on the, the psychopathic nature, or murderous nature uh, of the uh, intentions of the men uh, in that hayloft. And to be honest, uh, Cato Street is strange in a British context, but I'd argue that it's not necessarily very strange uh, in an Irish context. And there is a very clear Irish context which helps to explain the events prior to the 23rd of February and on the day uh, itself. If the plot in some ways feels very Irish in its scope and intent, uh, that's because uh, I certainly think the proclamation is very similar to John Shear's uh, text of 1798. Now, I'm not going to uh, recite from the whole of Shear's draft proclamation from 1798, but here is the, the first part of it. It begins, Irishmen, your country is free and you are about to be avenged. That vile government which has so long and so cruelly oppressed you is no more. Some of its most atrocious monsters have already paid the forfeit of their lives and the rest are in our hands awaiting their fate. The national flag, the sacred green, is at this moment flying over the ruins of despotism. And that capital, which a few hours past witnessed the debauchery, the machinations, plots and crimes of your tyrants, and the key phrase, your tyrants, your tyrants in 1798, your tyrants in 1820, is now the citadel of triumphant patriotism uh, and virtue. So it's clear to me that there are definitely similarities in the two texts. Uh, in 1798 and 1820, we get an appeal to Irishmen and then to Englishmen. Uh, we get the triumphant destruction of your tyrants in both 1798 and 1820. We also get two categories of troops in the later part of Shear's proclamation, uh, people, soldiers who are ready to go over to the side uh, of the people uh, for money and those who aren't and will receive no uh, mercy, just as there are two types of soldiers in the 1820s, uh, in the 1820 proclamations. 
And also, I think what's intriguing is that both the 1798 proclamation and the 1820 proclamations envisage a particular moment. They don't imagine uh, a situation in which a republic has been established and it is guaranteeing fundamental rights and liberties to the citizens of that republic, such as the 1803 proclamation associated with Emmett or the 1916 proclamation. What both the 1798 and the 1820 proclamations envisage is a particular moment at which the rebels have struck uh, initially victoriously, and then they need the people uh, to rally to their side to push home uh, that victory. And if we accept the similarities, the question is, uh, why are the similarities? It may just be that that's entirely accidental. Uh, this may just be the house style of revolutionary Jacobism, Jacobinism, uh, that the phrases are there uh, just because that is in the air, that's downloaded from the the cliches, the, 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 the sort of the tropes of revolutionary Jacobinism. And that may be, that may be true. But I think, and here I'm going to follow, uh, finish up in the, in the next uh, five minutes uh, or so. Uh, I think what's clear is that there is a really strong connection uh, with Irishmen in London, which helps to explain the similarities between the 1798 proclamation and the 1820 proclamation, and also the specific changes added in on the 28th of January uh, into the Cato Street Plotters uh, proclamation addressing the United Britons and Irishmen. Because one of the plotters, Richard Bradburn, the 29-year-old Dublin carpenter uh, who was uh, transported uh, to Australia for life, claimed to be in contact with plotters in Ireland in November and December uh, 1819. Whether or not that's true, we don't have any evidence. Uh, it is clear that he was put in charge of organizing a section <clears throat> of up to 12 Irishmen in London in December 1819. Intriguingly, on the 16th of December 1819, Bradburn is reported by George Edwards at a meeting to have told Thistlewood, the head of the conspiracy, that the Irish he'd been talking to in London wanted to act for themselves in the future uh, matter. He tells Thistlewood that the Irish don't trust uh, the English conspirators to follow through and uh, that they want to keep themselves separate until the moment they're called uh, to strike. On the 22nd of December, Edwards the spy <clears throat> sees Bradburn at a meeting with Thistlewood <clears throat> with an Irishman called Staunton. And on the 26th of December, uh, Edwards meets Bradburn with another Irishman, Hayes, who he says spoke about the insurrection in Ireland and said that he had been in it. So there's definitely one Irishman involved in the center of the plot. He's there when the proclamations uh, are being drawn up. He's very lucky to escape with his life and only uh, get transported to Australia uh, for life. But there's also uh, another person involved in meeting with Irishmen in London. This is another conspirator, an Englishman named John Brunt, who had uh, a series of meetings in, a, in an Irish area off Oxford Street, very close to Cato Street, uh, in an Irish area off Oxford Street. And John Brunt 
uh, had a whole series of meetings with different uh, individuals throughout December uh, and into January. Uh, the individuals in December and January were uh, unnamed. Uh, he had uh, quite an interesting modus operandi in terms of internal security. What Brunt does uh, is he goes with a number of fellow cons conspirators. He goes to meet, as he says, an Irishman, but he meets him inside the premises and leaves the two, two other conspirators, including George Edwards, outside to keep watch. So the informer can't uh, identify uh, the individual he met, but he can record that Brunt afterwards says uh, that the Irishman he met was a damned good fellow who did not mind killing a man or two. It was what he had done in Ireland. In February, Brunt uh, was meeting quite regularly with an Irishman called Burke uh, from that same area of Oxford Street, who said he had a party of Irishmen uh, who were willing to be involved, but once again, confirming Bradburn's uh, reports in December, said they did not want to meet the English before they were ready uh, to go into action. A few days later, Burke promised Brunt, the conspirator, 50 men under an Irishman called uh, McKeever. And on the 21st of February, <clears throat> Burke uh, Brunt uh, and was cautioning against rising uh, imminently uh, because of the difficult uh, situation. Intriguingly, uh, Burke told Brunt that perhaps they should get advice from a friend of his called Charles Pendle, uh, at which point Thistlewood said, Pendrel should not be involved because Pendrel uh, had been uh, around so many plots which had gone uh, bad and never been arrested that he suspected that Pendrel was an informer. Uh, and lo and behold, uh, Robert Poole has uh, recently discovered uh, that Pendrel was informing for the Home Office in 1817 uh, and 1818. And Pendrel had been involved in Despard's plot uh, at the early part uh, of the century. So, so Burke is definitely a man who's around uh, other plotters uh, and he's talking to uh, the central core of the Cato Street conspirators uh, about uh, rising uh, in February. And even on the day of the planned rising itself, the 23rd of February, the government spy Edwards notes uh, in his report that two Irishmen appeared at their uh, rendezvous, a man called Murray and a man called McKeever. Uh, and intriguingly, he says that he had heard about these Irishmen, but he'd never met them. So what that tells you is that even within the core group, Thistlewood had delegated different responsibilities so that not everybody knew everything uh, about the plot. And Murray and McKeever on the day of the 23rd of February uh, were given the job uh, by Thistlewood and the other plotters to take the cannons at the artillery ground and raid uh, for arms uh, with uh, a number uh, of Englishmen. So there's an element there uh, of uh, internal security. It's clear that the Irish don't want to meet with the English uh, until the very end for security reasons, uh, but it's also clear that even Thistlewood's aide de camp uh, knew little uh, apart from general rumours uh, about the Irishmen uh, who were involved in the plans for 
uh, Verizon uh, on the on the 23rd uh, of February. And I think that Irish context, those Irish men that they're talking to consistently throughout December, January and February helps to explain why it's so important to have that phrase in the draft proclamation, United Britons uh, and Irishmen, civil and religious liberty is decreed even though that text jars against the start of the proclamation, which is just uh, to Englishmen. So to conclude, I, I've looked anew at the uh, Cato Street conspiracy through the lens of the proclamations. Uh, I've explained why, even though they were extremely significant, the proclamations were never referred to uh, in court and suggested that they allow us to delineate the outline of the plotters' uh, politics. The proclamations shed light on a broader network of conspirators uh, who did not face charges in court and who would later deny all uh, involvement uh, in the plot. But I think it's clear once we focus in on the proclamations, uh, it's clear that there was that wider uh, network. But the documents also suggest that the Cato Street men took inspiration from the example of the United Irishmen. And it's also clear that the Cato Street conspirators were in extensive contact with former Irish rebels in London uh, in the months, weeks and days, and even on the day uh, of the projected rising uh, itself. So to finalise, I think I'd say in that context, uh, I think I'd argue that we might need to start thinking about the Cato Street men not as conspirators, as they've always been seen in the British context. They're always referred to as the Cato Street conspirators, but rather to start thinking about them as the Cato Street rebels, because I think that word rebel gives a sense of the seriousness of those men's intentions, but also puts their security blunders, their lack of proper planning, and their quixotic assumptions uh, about their likely success within a richer Irish historiographical context. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jason. That was really, um, that, 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 was really that, that was really, that was really fascinating. And I think there's a whole range of questions that are emerging and floating into us in the Q and A box, which I want to put to you. Um, mm. And I think picking up on a whole range of issues, um, and from I think from the Pacific to the general, and I'm going to I'm going to start with the first question that came in quite early on during the paper from Martin Powell, um, who's asking about is wondering about the pre-signing and dating of evidence. He's suggesting it's used by lawyers to undermine key pros key prosecution witness in Archibald Hamilton Rowan's trial in the mid 1790s, and suggestive and informer's evidence carrying less weight. Do you think that adds something to what you were saying about um, Edwards and his unreliability and his fate, the sort of signing of the documents? Yeah, I, you know, I, I coming across them in the, in the Home Office uh, papers, I, I was very suspicious naturally of of Edwards. If if his if his job is to be a perjurer to to get people into the witness box that you wouldn't necessarily, uh, you wouldn't necessarily trust him. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's, a good, it's a good point that he is somebody who for long periods of time when he's bringing the, he's the one who brings the first uh, proclamation into the debtor's prison and so on. And if we were only relying on his, uh, 
on his evidence, we could be skeptical. But for example, there are lots of there are lots of different. Sorry, there we go. There's my video. Uh, there are lots of different uh, copies within the Home Office papers of those uh, of those proclamations, and one of the key tasks was trying to work out what are all, why are all these copies here and a lot of the copies are copies that the other members of the group had made so when i can correlate the copies that george edwards makes against the copies that it's certified that are in palin's hands and also the copies that are in uh, john james watson's hands they're identical Hey, that's interesting. Um, I just picking up one of these one of the questions, and again, this comes back to another question that Martin has asked, but also a question from Sylvie Kleinman, and they're both asking about this was coming back to you, the echoes that you're tracing back to 1798, but also both Sylvie and Martin have raised the question of the Despard conspiracy, which was also on my mind, and I'm just wondering, um, you know, is there a connection back, but in terms of the United Britain's sort of um, phrasing, but and. How important was that into this? Because again, there's a key Irish dimension, I think has been highlighted even more so again, Peter Lingbaugh's most recent um, mm. sort of disinterring of that. I was wondering if you comment on the links between the Despard and Cato. Yeah, uh, it, it, they're good questions. And interestingly, uh, interestingly, when they're in the Cato Street uh, cowshed, uh, the conspirators are a bit disappointed that there are only 24. They, they had a promise of 40 different uh, people who would, who would be coming, uh, and they have 24 in total. And there is, for a brief moment, a discussion as to whether they should just give it up and, and go away and choose a better day. And Thistlewood says, no, uh, if we don't go ahead, this will just be a Despard's job. In other words, we will have come together uh, and then we will go away and we'll all be hanged anyway. Uh, we'll be rounded up afterwards. So they, he decides that they need to push ahead with that. Uh, again, I, I didn't want to go into too much detail just because there are so many names and so on. But uh, when I think it's intriguing that there are definitely people floating around uh, who are links with the with with the with the with the Despard uh, conspiracy in, in 1802, 1803. One of the ways to, to trace that is that when George Edwards brings the first declaration uh, into Whitecross Street Prison uh, in late January, and he goes to Watson's cell, Watson is in his cell with two individuals, he says. He's in the, he's in the cell with a man called Doyle, which suggests it's, a, it's an Irish name, and then somebody he calls Charles Pendrell. Uh, when Edwards comes in, Watson leaves the two in the cell and he walks out and they walk around uh, the yard and then he hands him the, the declaration to be rewritten. So Pendrell is one of those interesting characters. He's around. Now, we don't know whether Watson went back owed the declaration to uh, Pendrell and, uh, and Doyle, who were waiting for him in, in his cell. But he's certainly around uh, Watson when Watson gets that declaration uh, and rewrites it into, into two declarations. And I think it's intriguing that later on, 
uh, two days before the rising uh, or the projected rising in February uh, on February 21st, uh, when Burke says, listen, why don't we take advice from Pendrel? Thistlewood says, uh, under no circumstances mention this to Pendrel because Pendrel, who was involved in the Despard conspiracy, who's been involved in lots of things, never seems to get arrested. Uh, and I think that was a good, uh, uh, it's an intriguing thing that there's that link with the Despard. They're, they're aware of it being a, of the history of the Despard uh, conspiracy. They're aware that there are individuals floating around who, certainly with Pendrel, who were around the Despard conspiracy and they just don't trust them because they never seem to be arrested. Uh, and also they have this strange idea of internal security. Uh, they are very able to uh, counter surveillance and, uh, and have some elementary idea of in internal uh, security and suspicion. Uh, they were just very unlucky uh, that the spy amongst the myths was George Edwards. Yeah, so that, like, that intrigued me as much that you know, they seem to be drawing lessons from the experience both of 98 and also of the Despard conspiracy and keeping, they maintained their cells much better than the United Irishmen ever did. Um, and it was good, at, and, and Pendrel, I suppose, in some ways, just echoes of William Drennan wandering around in the 1790s, active, but also people treating him as suspicious because he can write anything and not be lifted. Um, probably unfoundedly but interesting all the same and just, just another 1798 question and an active union question i might just bring these two together one of them coming from daryl um, rooney is asking about us do we have any evidence of extant reproductions or souvenir copies of the shears proclamation in england if and if there were former united irish men or united irish sympathizers involved in the conspiracy in what form are they likely to have had the text of john's proclamation and i think that brings us to the part of the question of the linkages and just links to that I suppose in is there any sense that the active union is playing a role in this as well is the active union going to be dissolved dissolved does that come into the proclamation at all and that's coming from Andrew Wells. Uh, good, good questions there. Uh, my understanding and, and the, uh, my understanding is that, uh, and where I've found the Shears uh, proclamation, I, my understanding is that any of the originals would have been uh, destroyed in 1922 in the, in, in the public record office, where I've found uh, the uh, copies of Shears proclamation uh, are in uh, a holograph, there's a holograph reproduction from 79, I think it's 1801, 1802, on the report of the secret committee uh, on 1798. And at the back, they have uh, the, the, a copy of the original manuscript uh, of Shears, uh, Shears' declaration. And then Shears' declaration is uh, referred to uh, in the printed state trials. Uh, and the printed state trials are... Uh, available uh, to all and sundry, including radicals, in uh, certainly by 1820, uh, and in particular the volume of uh, dealing with Shears trials is published uh, in a format in London in 1819 and 1820. So uh, it is certainly possible for anybody uh, from a learned or academic background who's interested at the time to have access to Shears uh, proclamations, but also people who would have been involved perhaps in, in the United Irishmen would have, would have known of it uh, in, in some context or would have, 
or even if they're they're relying on the reports of of, the, of Shears trials, uh, which were obviously very famous uh, at the time. These are texts that that are likely to have been passed down in some way among comrades of uh, people who had survived uh, 1798 and 1803. Hey, yeah. Um, no. Just on the union, is there a is there a tension in the proclamations called for United Britons and Irishmen? Um, is there an offer to dissolve the union as part of this? Yeah, it's 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 again it's uh, that's a, that's a really uh, interesting question because there's a there's a there, there's a real tension because they're definitely determined the the they're definitely determined to kill Castle Ray and one of the plotters. Uh, they know the Earl of Harrowby's house and it, and it's they they. They had staked out the Earl of Harrowby's house by the 1st of February and they knew the internal layout and they knew that if you went up the front steps, they knew the internal layout, they knew the dining room was to the right as you went in and they had a plan what they would do. And the first thing they would do uh, was they would take Sidmouth's head off and the second thing they would do is they would take Castlereagh's head off. And then the plan was to send Castlereagh's head back to Ireland. Uh, uh, to, to encourage uh, people to rise. So they're definitely focused uh, on Ireland. But there is a tension uh, about what they intend to do uh, with Ireland because they want to see uh, freedom and liberty. But the assumption, and again, we can't, we can't uh, delineate too much uh, from it, but the assumption is that it will be a united uh, republic uh, of, of Britain and Ireland. But even within that, there is a tension because when Bradburn, and, and I'd forgotten about this, and, and the question is just uh, reminded me of this, when Bradburn reports back to Thistlewood that the Irish want to keep themselves separate because they don't trust the English radicals uh, to rise, uh, Thistlewood gets quite annoyed with them and says that, look, when Ireland is freed, it will be because of what we do. It won't be because of what people in Ireland do. So freedom for Ireland is something that will be delivered by the, the, uh, the radical elite or the terrorists. They would have used the word. They are terrorists uh, who will deliver uh, liberty uh, for Ireland. Uh, and there's also a tension as well in a, in a different uh, approach. Uh, Burke the person that John Brunt is communicating with about bringing the 50 or the 100 radicals, uh, who, the numbers vary, uh, out on the, on the 23rd. Burke keeps saying to them, uh, I can't understand why you haven't sworn everybody. You need to swear people. You, you cannot uh, enter into this without swearing people. And Burke offers to swear everybody uh, involved in the English uh, side of it. And the English just don't understand the concept of swearing the oath. I don't think that the people involved, the English and, and British people involved in the Cato Street conspiracy uh, had sworn an oath. Uh, and I think that Burke and certainly other of his comrades couldn't understand uh, what was going on with these. And that was one of the reasons why they didn't entirely trust them. Okay, and I think just again, I suppose picking slightly up on that, I think we've to some degree answered the question here about monarchy. Um, you know, the, the division is a republic, which addresses that. The question here from Robert Poole, who you, met, who, who you mentioned and who is here today, and again, mm -hmm. points to the reach of the seminar today. Um, 
who is, as I said, he's really enjoyed the convincing and gripping reconstruction. His question is about the power of words. The great store was placed by ultra radicals on the power of rhetoric to dissolve allegiances to authority, which was assumed to be superficial and fragile. There was little practical organization behind the coup and the declaration of revolution would precede and precipitate the reality. What can you say about the way in which the plotters expected that this would come about? Yeah, that's a good uh, that's a good uh, question from Robert, and and actually, uh, it's almost as if I've I've organised this. But you can probably see right up on the on the very right is uh, is Robert's book on Peterloo, which I'd uh, recommend to to everyone. It's, that's almost like I'd, I'd arranged that, but I but I haven't. I can just see it in the in the reflection there. Uh, there is this this appeal to reason and rationality that you you put the that that the ground is ripe. Uh, I, I suppose or Casey would have said the, the times are rotten ripe for revolution and all you need to do is 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 pluck uh, at it and, and it will happen. At the same time, and, and Robert knows much better than I do, there, there are extensive contacts between uh, London and the Midlands and the north of England and also Scotland as well, uh, to the extent that Thistlewood and the radicals don't necessarily have a lot of, of money uh, but they're able to travel uh, to the Midlands in November. Uh, and one of the people who gave them uh, money uh, was uh, a, a kind of a, a senior, uh, a senior uh, figure in, in the uh, radical uh, movement uh, at, at the time. So there's, there's something going on. And, and again, some of the stories from informers are overblown about the, the meetings that are going on and so on. But there are times in which individuals from Manchester turn up in London and they are trying to work out signals for what will happen. They're trying to work out, certainly the signal, and, and Robert will know this, is that if the mails are stopped, uh, that's the signal that something has happened. And what we don't know is to what extent there were very real fears of the state. And they were really worried uh, in uh, late 1819 and early 20, as, as Malcolm Chase uh, showed brilliantly in, in his book on, on 1820. They were really worried about those, those links. And the, the, the sense is that the difficulty is trying to work out. Uh, we have the words because they've been frozen in the files, and that's what historians uh, have to rely on. To a certain extent, uh, we are then at sea as to, to what extent those uh, words reflect uh, agreements which were never written down necessarily between people who were trusted correspondents between London uh, and Manchester as to what would happen. But we do see occasional uh, glimpses uh, of there being some sort of coordination. Certainly there's an attempt to rise in Glasgow uh, on the, the 1st of April in 1820 uh, in which there is a printed proclamation uh, declaring uh, a provisional government. Uh, the text is quite different from the Cato Street uh, text, but there is, again, a proclamation. Uh, a provisional government is sitting. Uh, it's now time 
uh, to overthrow the government. And that brings out uh, a general strike of 40,000 people uh, in Glasgow uh, at the time. So it's a really interesting question, but it's obviously a, a difficult question because the frustration, the great thing is we have those files in the Home Office. Uh, the, the problem is they, they fix and they privilege a certain type of information and it would be absolutely amazing to be able to access in some way uh, the evidence that just uh, that has been lost that isn't in those files. Yeah, and just I suppose we have um, one question, I suppose more, uh, more detailed, taken away from the bigger themes, um, it's from Kieran Hannan, who as I understand it has got up at 3am in Australia to ask this question. Um, he got up at three. He tried to get up at three a.m. this morning, thinking that the seminar was yesterday. So we better get to the question. And he asks, "Can you please comment on the use of the Spencean Philanthropist Society as a venue for the plotters?" Yeah, uh, just just as the as the background uh, to to that uh, for people who who may not uh, understand, uh, Thomas Spence was a was a remarkable uh, individual. He's someone I've become quite interested in because. He's born in Newcastle, 1750, uh, I think it's 1812 he dies, it might be 1814, uh, but he, he moved to, to London and he's remarkable because he's uh, an artisan, a Kebian artisan who in Newcastle comes across quite an extensive uh, trove of 17th century uh, and early 18th century pamphlets and he's somebody who can repurpose those early modern pamphlets for the radical struggle of the 1790s and uh, the 1810s. And why he's significant is that uh, he pulls around him a, a group of people who believe in the slogan that the land is the people's farm. So in some way, uh, in some way you could say it's a sort of a, a proto-communism is that there should be no private property uh, in that all of the land in, in society should be communally held uh, and uh, it's, it's a system of, of, of moving uh, towards that. And after his death, a number of his followers formed the Society of Spencian Philanthropists. And uh, the idea is to keep that uh, idea alive, to fight for that. And many of the key individuals who turn up in Cato Street are people who knew Spence or who are involved with the Society for Spencian uh, Philanthropists. Uh, Thistlewood, Watson, all of the people who are around uh, him. But one of the interesting things for me, and and uh, I'm kind of uh, interested in in discussing this in in, in the future with, with Kieran uh, and other specialists, is the extent to which that just doesn't appear in the proclamations uh, that I uh, I cited there. The Cato Street proclamations go out of their way to preserve private property. They say uh, that obedience to the decrees of the provisional government will guarantee uh, everybody in their personal uh, safety and in their property. Now, the question you have to ask then is why is that? Is that because they are Spencian philanthropists, uh, proto-communists, uh, if you will, is slightly anachronistic phrase, but I think it explains what the essence of Spencianism is about. Uh, are they Spencians who are trying to reach out uh, or uh, to a broader Jacobin uh, audience, or is it that they're no longer uh, Spencians uh, at that time? Uh, 
uh, Spentians are fascinating, uh, but uh, I don't believe, unfortunately, that their, their institutional archive uh, survives uh, anymore. Uh, and again, there are people uh, who are tuned into to this uh, uh, presentation today who know far more uh, about that. But the Spentians are, are a remarkable moment uh, in uh, British uh, revolutionary uh, history, really uh, under understood. Uh, and it would be very interesting if we could see any trace of them around Cato Street. And I unfortunately can't detect uh, any Spencian, uh, Spencian language around the Cato Street conspiracy. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, just quick comment up there coming in from Robert Poole on that, and I think then we'll finish up. He just suggests that the Seditious Meetings Acts of the 1790s generally banned unauthorised political meetings. Only the 1799 one was still in force in 1814, but the 1817 Act followed. Legal exceptions were made for religious and philanthropic meetings. It was perhaps partly an ironic legal statement. I think that speaks to that very well. Um, we might just finish up there, but I think it's intriguing that we've managed to come back again to the links between the 17th and the early 19th century and tying again, tying together your, your interests and I suppose the lack of that language appearing in the proclamations is intriguing. Um, I think that's been an absolutely fascinating presentation. We've had um, a record number of questions for these Zoom webinar seminars. So I think that speaks to the, the richness of the paper. And I would, like to thank, I would like to thank Jason in the usual way, but we can't really do that. But we can imagine a round of applause here. And just to advertise that our next seminar will be coming in um, next, next Monday, we'll move to something very different. And we'll have uh, Dr. Susan Flavin from Trinity here, who will be speaking with some of her colleagues on her food cult project, which is a European Research Council funded project investigating diet and food in early modern Ireland. So Susan's going to be introducing that project and explaining some of the progress made so far, which I think has been somewhat held up by current circumstances, but we'll be getting some insight into that. So that's next week. The following Monday, we'll be back in the 18th century with Scott Sowerby talking about toleration and Catholic recruitment to the military in the 1750s. And then the final seminar will be the following week again with Professor Jane Olmeyer giving us a preview of her Ford lectures on Ireland and Empire. So I hope you'll tune in to those events. In the meantime, just to thank Jason again and to thank you all for your questions and your participation and in another wonderful seminar. Thank you. Thanks, Patrick. And thanks everyone for listening. <laughs>